You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? Right on, right on. So if you're new here, uh, my name is David Dowdy. I am the teaching pastor here, and I'm glad you're here. Um, And what we're doing this evening is we are continuing our series, Bible Stories, Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're looking at the most famous Old Testament stories and see how they all point to Jesus. The New Testament tells us that all of the Old Testaments, all of the major themes uh, and and people that you see are really just types and shadows of the one who was to come, who's Jesus. Um, So that's really our goal in this whole series. So last week we... We're in the book of Judges, and we took a look at a judge named Gideon, and how judgment, a redeemer, and how God um, uses the weak and foolish things of the world in order to accomplish his ends, and we saw God use weak and foolish Gideon uh, in order to display his glory and his power and his wisdom and redeem his people. Uh, And this week, we're going to continue in Judges by looking at the story of Samson. Um, Now, i got to tell you guys a story because my family begged me to. Um, I went to a church growing up. It's actually like on 7th Street, 7th Street Church down there. Um, and at that church, you used to be able to, you just get up and sing a song if you felt like it. Anyone grew up in a church like that? You just get up and just sing whenever you felt like it. Okay. Uh, and I was six or seven years old. A little bit of backstory to this. I, uh, <laughs> uh, my grandfather owns a Wurlitzer. You guys know what that is? It's an old jukebox, right? And, uh, it's got a bunch of music on it, and I used to listen to old 50s and 60s records with him, and there was a song from the 60s called Run, Samson, Run, and it's not a Christian song. Um, it's, it, it's, it starts out, it's, it's good, so like, um, anyway, I get up to sing this song, Run, Samson, Run, because I'm seven, my seven-year-old mind says, eh, it's about a guy in the Bible, this will work, this is great, they'll love it. Um, and everyone's clapping, and I'm singing it. Because it starts out like, you know, like this story starts in the Bible a long time ago before Jesus was here. And people are like, okay, I dig it, man. And then it gets to the end of the chorus that says, I would rather trust a hungry lion than a gal with a cheating heart. Which is a reference to Delilah and how she sold out Samson. Uh, and all the clapping stopped in the church. And mom's sitting over there. My mom's in the back. She's sitting there, stop it, get off the stage. Like she knew exactly what the song was as soon as I started. And I was like, not now, mom. The people love it. Um, and then, <laughs> so as soon as I hit that last line of the chorus... All the clapping ended, and either the people got mad or they thought it was hilarious. Um, I still think it was funny, and that's why we don't let people stand up here and sing. That's why we do a praise band here at Rev, because I'm an idiot. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so every time, like, the story of Samson, whenever I read Judges, always has a special place in my heart, because that was just really funny. That was a good time. Um, but the, on a serious note, Samson's story is really a complicated one. Um, he sins a lot. Man, like, Samson, like, messes up literally almost everything that he could. Um, But nevertheless, Samson was a believer, right? Uh, Hebrews 11 tells us this much, right? A lot of pastors refer to Hebrews 11 as the hall of faith, right? Like a lame Christian pun on the hall of fame, right? Where it says all of these, like, titans of the faith, like, by faith, Abraham did X, and by faith, Moses did this, and by faith, Rahab did this, and by faith, Gideon did this. And Samson is actually mentioned by name, in Hebrews chapter 11. So that leads us to to know that Samson was indeed a believer. Um, But Samson was not a good role model for anybody, morally speaking. Um, And in spite of that, God used him mightily 
But nevertheless, Samson sinned in some really, really heinous ways that we're going to see this evening. Um, So as we look at this account of Samson's life, I want you guys to keep in mind uh, the grace of God to use sinners. And also the sovereignty of God to always accomplish his purposes regardless of what happens and regardless of what kind of sin enters into the story. Right, so we're going to be covering uh, the whole account of Samson this evening. It's, uh, it's four chapters long. It's chapters 13 through 16. Uh, so what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be reading some text and filling in the gaps and really trying to give you guys the highlights and lowlights of, uh, of Samson's life. And once we've covered the account of Samson, we're going to consider one thing briefly and a second thing for a good bit of time um, and see what we can take from this biblical narrative. Um, and I hope that you guys are going to see by the end of this that we can rest in the sovereignty of God over all things. Um, so before I pray, I just want to just a little, little note. I got, actually have a timer up here. Uh, we've been doing this for four minutes. Um, bear with me because this sermon is not going to be short. I know I, you guys are thinking it's never short, moron. Right? But like, like this evening is going to be maybe a little bit longer than normal uh, because we are going to deal with some seriously sensitive theological issues regarding the sovereignty of God. Um, so bear with me. Pay attention. Um, because if you don't, you're, you're, you're really going to misunderstand what I'm saying, right? So with that being said, we're going to pray, and then we're going to hop into the account of Samson. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to teach your word this evening. Uh, Holy Spirit, please open our ears and soften our hearts and prepare our minds to receive your word. Uh, no matter how hard the truths might be, no matter how uncomfortable that they might make us, Help us to see your glory shine through all of it and help us to rest in your complete and utter control of everything that comes to pass. God, please draw an unbeliever to know you this evening and and edify and encourage the people who do already know you um, that we might behold you for the glorious God that you are. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool, so... The story starts out in Judges chapter 13. We're going to start out in verse 1 because it's good to start at the beginning. Uh, If you want to use your Bibles, you can, but I'm going to be going pretty quickly. It's going to be on the projector. And if you're new here, there are Bibles in the backs of your pews. Take one home. Take either one of them home. It's the NLT and the uh, NKJV. Both are good translations. That's our gift to you. Um, But yeah, Judges chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Right? So this child that this barren woman is going to have, fun fact, I believe that Samson is one of four people whose birth was foretold. Right? Pretty interesting stuff. I believe it was Isaac, uh, Samson, John the Baptist, and Jesus. Just a little fun fact for you. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, so his birth is being foretold by the angel of the Lord to his mother. And the angel says he is to be a Nazarite. Now, if you want to read up on this, it's in Numbers chapter 6. We're not really going to dig into that. Um, but a Nazarite, or one who takes a Nazarite vow, is someone who is consecrated to God um, in a special way, either for their entire life, 
or for a certain period of time. For most people, they would say, you know, I'm going to take the Nazarite vow for the next three months or the next six months or whatever. Um, and part of the Nazarite vow uh, is abstinence from a lot of things. Right? Uh, if you were a Nazarite, there's no wine. You're not allowed to have wine. You're not allowed to have grape juice. You're not allowed to have grapes. You're not allowed to have raisins. The Lord was very prejudiced against the grape family for some reason. Um, you're not allowed to have haircuts. Um, and you can't be in contact with anything dead. This is part of the Nazarite vow. And what it really symbolizes is complete and utter separation unto the Lord. And Samson, the child that's to be born, is to be a lifelong Nazarite. Right, so... Looking at that, God also reveals through the angel of the Lord that Samson's mission, right? So he's to be a Nazarite and he's given a mission. He is to not save Israel from the hand of the Philistines, but begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines, right? Uh, Israel's not going to be completely done with the Philistines until King David comes along, right? So we've got some generations to go, but he's going to get the ball rolling to end the Philistine oppression, right? So, so we see this announcement, and the chapter goes on and tells us Samson grows up, and then at the beginning of chapter 14, we come to an important event in Samson's life. This is really important uh, because it sets off a chain reaction in his life for God to work. Right? So Judges 14.1. Samson went down to Timnah, it's a Philistine city. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her from me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Right? So Samson grows up, and he wants a wife. Not just any wife, but he wants to marry a Philistine. Philistines don't worship Yahweh. They don't worship the God of the Bible. Right? He wants to marry a pagan woman because he, she looks right in his eyes. She's hot, apparently. And he wants to marry her, and this is sin. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Moses is, is giving out some, some rules that the, the people of Israel are to live by as they live in the promised land. And this is one of the rules he gives them from God. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So Samson's marriage to this Philistine woman is a sin. It's sinful. He is rebelling against the explicit command of God. But verse 4 tells us it is also from the Lord that Samson would do this. This is God's plan for Samson to marry this woman, though it is sin, and in doing so, give opportunity for God to strike at the Philistines. And we're going to really address this a lot here in a little while. But moving on with the story. So on the way down to Timnah to arrange the marriage, because that's what he did, um, Samson goes off away from his parents. They're walking together. He goes off by himself, and he's walking through a vineyard. And this is a famous part of the story. He comes across a young lion, right? This is like a lion's lion. It's mean. Um, and the Holy Spirit rushes upon Samson, and Samson rips the lion apart with his bare hands, right? Like his actual hands, not his bare hands. I love the bare hands joke. I can't help it. Um, Oh, that, was, that was lame. Um, but he, the text tells us that he told no one that he did this. And the reason why we can deduce that he would tell no one that he killed this lion is that in doing so, he broke the Nazarite vow. He had to touch something that was dead because he killed something, right? And he didn't want to have to do the ceremonial cleansing, 
It was an eight-day ritual for him to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean again as a Nazarite, and he didn't want to do that. So he's broken the vow, has no uh, desire to be ceremonially cleansed so that he can continue on with the vow. Um, so then he, after spending some time in Timnah, uh, arranging the wedding, Samson goes home, and he eventually comes back for the wedding. And on the way back, he returns to where he left the lion's corpse. And instead of seeing maggots and flies and stuff in it, he sees bees and honey in the corpse. Uh, so Samson is disgusting, and he scrapes the honey out of the lion and eats it. And then it says he gives some to his parents who have no idea where the honey came from. Um, again, prankster, kind of a dark sense of humor. Um, but again, he breaks the vow again, right? So, so far we see he's come in contact with a couple of dead things, does not do the ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing rites or anything like that. He does not care about this vow. He's, again, not a good Nazarite, not a good guy. But then while at the wedding feast, we see this exchange. Judges 14.10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then he told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle, which is the greatest verse in the Old Testament. Um, uh, that always makes me laugh. He's actually not calling his wife a cow. You wouldn't use a heifer to plow fields. He's saying you use the heifer to plow, right? You use my heifer. You cheated is what he's saying, right? So you messed around with my wife, got her to get the answer for you. You cheat, right? So Samson at this feast, remember he's Nazarite, not supposed to drink wine. The word used for the kind of feast that he used, the Hebrew word, means like a drinking party essentially, right? So Samson in all likelihood is drunk whenever he makes this bet with people, right? So he's breaking the, the vow that he's taken just left and right. So he, he makes a bet with these Philistines. The Philistines cheat and Samson now owes 30 sets of clothes um, and 30 sets of garments. So Samson uh, goes to a city called Ashkelon. Uh, it's a Philistine town, and there he kills 30 people and takes their clothes to pay the debt that he owes. All right? um, he, he murdered them. He murdered 30 men in order to pay a debt that he shouldn't have made, or should, because of a bet he shouldn't have made. Um, and meanwhile, right, again, there's just a lot of retaliation going on. So meanwhile, after Samson kills these dudes, uh, Samson's wife is given away to the best man from the wedding. <laughs> Right? Again, probably in retaliation. So he kills 30 guys. They give his wife to the best man from the wedding. It's like a bad comedy film. Um, Judges 15.3 goes on to say this. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, 
He let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. So Samson gets his revenge. Right? He, he burns down uh, the crops because they cheated him, and the Philistines retaliate, and they burn Samson's wife to death, and Samson retaliates and kills them all. Uh, that's what it means to strike hip and thigh. He kills all of them, and then he goes and hides out in Edom. Right? Uh, it's, it's a place in Judah. So the Philistines retaliate by raiding Judah, looking for Samson. And the people of Judah make a deal with the Philistines to turn Samson over to them. Verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck a thousand men. So Samson kills a thousand Philistines who have come for him with the jawbone of a donkey. And Samson's got a really good sense of humor. He actually renames the place where he did it, Jawbone Hill. Um, I, I thought that was really funny when I was studying this. Like, Samson's a really dark guy. Um, but now, so that's the first half of Samson's story. So there's, like a, there's a division. That's his first half. Now we're going to start the second half in chapter 16. It's the most famous chapter. It's the last chapter of Samson's life. And it starts off really bad. Verse 1. Samson went to Gaza. And there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Right? This is, these are like two-story tall gates. And he carried them about 38 miles uphill. <laughs> it's just funny, again, if you know like, the history behind it. So Gaza is a Philistine city. It's like a stronghold for them. It's, it's actually where Samson's going to die. Right? Uh, we're going to see this later. Um, but Samson's a big stronghold for them, big city for them. And Samson's destruction of the gates is really embarrassing for the Philistines. Right? That one man could rip the gates off of a city because they were trying to hold him in. And it weakens the city. Right? So we see here in just these three verses, God yet again strikes at the Philistines through Samson. But then after that we come to the most famous part of Samson's story. Right? It's the part that I sang about. Um, Judges 16, verse 4. After this... He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. 
So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Right? You think that would give him some like, like just ding, 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 ding. This, this chick is crazy, right? Like why would I, hmm. Right? But most of us know the story. She presses Samson over and over and over again and Samson just keeps lying to her. Um, Samson tells three different lies to Delilah about how he might be bound and, and he, he says, uh, you know, if you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings, like, right, like a bow and arrow, seven fresh bowstrings, I can't break them. Um, if you tie me up with new ropes that have never been used, I can't break them. If you weave my hair into a loom, I, I won't be able to get out. He gets creative. Um, and, and each time that Delilah attempts to bind Samson, she does it in his sleep, right? So she fall, he falls asleep, and then she tries to tie him up. And then she has the Philistines laying in wait to capture Samson. And every single time, the first three times that he lies to her, Samson wakes up, and he breaks his bonds. Kind of funny, again. So like she starts, she's, she's mad at him. And she persists in her efforts to get the true answer because she really wants this money. She doesn't care about Samson, right? She wants the money. Verse 15, and she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. You thought your wife was bad. And, and he told her, no, not funny, whatever, sorry ladies. And he told her all his heart, and he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Right, so Samson here reveals that his power is from the Lord. There's no intrinsic magic power in his hair. His power comes from God, and the Nazarite vow expresses that truth. This is the one part of the Nazarite vow that Samson has not broken. He's broken every other part of them in addition to many of God's other laws. But Samson's power comes from God. His hair is an expression of that. Verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So because of Samson's weakness, stupidity, and sin, Samson is captured, blinded, and forced into slavery. Grinding the mill was slave work. And after capturing him, the Philistines gather in a temple to praise a false god named Dagon. He was the big god for the Philistines. And they're praising Dagon in this temple for their victory over Samson. And this is the last passage we're going to read. Verse 25. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines, that's their rulers, all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me 
And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. This is the story of Samson the judge. Just a, just a divine tragedy, essentially. It has all the, like, all the like, uh, linguistic marks of a tragedy. Right, so, so Samson was a failure at times. Right? But like I said in the beginning, he is mentioned, I just want to hit this briefly, he's mentioned as having genuine faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 35 tell us that he was a believer. So Samson, despite all of his failure, is in heaven. He was indeed a believer, but he was also a colossal failure, morally speaking. He is not a great example for us to follow, but definitely was a believer. So that being said, first, I just want to point this out quickly, uh, that Samson is proof that people are justified by faith alone and not obedience. Has to be that way. People are declared right in God's eyes by when they trust in Him, not by what they do, not by their obedience. If people are saved by how well they obey, then Samson has no hope, but the Bible clearly tells us Samson was a believer. Faith alone saves sinners because God justifies the ungodly when they believe, which should give hope to people like you and me who sin all the time because really, we're no better than Samson, right? It's just Samson's story is written on the black and white pages of Scripture. If we did that for each of us, we would want to burn the book, right? We wouldn't want anyone to read that. But I'd also like to point out that since Samson was a believer, he must have had times of genuine repentance. Because the Bible tells us no true believer can live in continual unrepentant sin. A believer may fail all the time morally, but there will be real repentance. Like again, Samson's story is just highlights and lowlights of his life. Right? So again, don't model your life after Samson's account. Don't, don't look to Samson and say, well, I'm not that bad, so like, I must be pretty all right. Look to Christ as your example and his sinless perfection. Right? Compare yourself to him and see what you ought to be. See your own sin and then trust that his work on the cross is actually what's going to save you and not your own work because you are, you're just as bad as Samson. And you ought to be as perfect as Christ, but you can't, so God must justify you by faith. But I think Samson's story is an encouragement to us. Um, the fact that God uses sinners to accomplish his plan. It's really fun to read this and see that God doesn't just use the morally perfect. Uh, I was listening to John MacArthur talk about this, and he said, if God only used the morally perfect human beings, then he would use no human beings. <laughs> right? God uses us by his grace to show that he's gracious towards sinners. So it's not, and don't get this twisted, if you see yourself being mightily used by God, it's not because we're so good that, God, that causes God to use us, but rather because God graciously uses the broken sinner. That's why we're used by God. All right, so be encouraged. All right, before we get into the hard stuff, I want you to be encouraged um, that yet you have failed morally. Um, some of it might be as heinous as Samson's sins. Maybe it's lesser in human beings' eyes, but you have failed morally. But God is not finished with you, just like he was not finished with Samson. Right? So repent and keep trusting Christ and see the hope that God can still use you. Uh, Tim Keller said something to the effect of, to believe that God only uses the perfect is to deny his grace and power, which I found to be very, very uh, enlightening. So if God can use Samson, he can use you. Uh, Not because you're better than Samson, 
uh, but because God is patient and full of grace. Right? So there's some hope for us. Um, but that is not where we're going to land. Um, there, there is something much larger uh, in this story. I just really didn't want to ignore the, the gospel truth that God uses the sinner by grace and that God justifies people when they believe, not because of what they do. Um, and, and, and to be totally honest, um, I wanted to preach that, what I just did, that short little rundown. Like, that's what I wanted to preach on. I wanted to preach on about four other things, like anything but what I'm going to talk to you guys about this evening, honestly. Um, but I could not get away from this truth that I see in Samson's story. And what I see is the sovereignty of God reigning over this whole account. Specifically, God's sovereignty over sin and the sinful actions of men. I see the sovereignty of God over all of those things, especially sin. All right, so I try to preach to you guys. Um, whenever, I, whenever I teach uh, in general... Uh, my, my life's goal is to, is to point you to Christ and teach you sound doctrine and sound theology, right? Um, and I, I try to do that every single week, uh, but this evening is going to be much more explicit and much more intentional uh, in, in me teaching you guys some doctrine. Um, so two things I want I to go over before we jump into the doctrine of God's sovereignty over sin. And that's one, please hear me on this, in order to do solid, sound, biblical theology, we often must leave our emotions, preconceived notions about God and how He operates. We must leave our I thinks and our I feels at the door. Because we need to look at the text. What does the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God say about God and how He does things? Because what I think doesn't matter. My preconceived notions about the Lord does not matter. What does God say about God? Right? So I would beg you, um, this isn't meant to be backhanded or condescending. Let's all be adults um, as, as we consider this and just see what Scripture says about God and how He works. That's, that's one. And two is this. My job uh, as a pastor is to declare the whole counsel of God and not shrink back from anything that God declares or that God does, and to not be ashamed to declare those things to you. My job is not to stand up here and entertain you or make you feel good all the time. Uh, some, most of the time, my job is to challenge you and point you to things about God that make us very uncomfortable. Right? So in declaring the whole counsel of God and not shrinking back from anything, sometimes I have to teach you guys things that are going to raise more questions than it's going to give answers. And I'm convinced this evening is going to probably be one of those times. There are going to be more questions than answers. So let's consider the scripture and take God for what it says and trust the goodness of God. Fair enough? All right, just like Baptists, we don't say nothing. Right, good. All right, silent. So whenever I say God is sovereign, what I mean by that, this is my definition, God rules over the micro and the macro of the universe. Right? God rules over the smallest, most seemingly insignificant things in the universe that we would chalk up to chance, and also the huge events of life. Right? And here's some scripture for you for that. Right? I'm not making this up. Proverbs 16.33 for the micro things. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Right? So like roulette wheels in Las Vegas, right? whenever you're playing poker, shooting dice, if you're a hoodlum like me. Right? Shooting dice, all that stuff. It seems random, but nothing, in fact, is random. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that the dust that's floating in the sun ray right through your window in your bedroom, that the dust that's dancing in that ray of light, God is in control over all of that, and it's moving exactly how God has foreordained it to move. The micro, the things that we would say are small and random, are not small and random. God controls all of them. And for the big things, Isaiah 46.10, this is God speaking about himself, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Notice it doesn't say knowing the end from the beginning. It says declaring the end from the beginning. That's for ordination of everything from the beginning. So God doesn't just know. He declares these things that are going to happen. And he is infallible. So they necessarily must happen. Right? So nothing, all that to say, nothing happens apart from the plan of God. So let me put that in some other ways that may make you more or less comfortable. Nothing happens apart from the decree of God. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. Nothing happens apart from the foreordination of God. Nothing happens apart from the purpose of God. Nothing happens apart from the predestination that comes from God. Nothing. God rules over all things. Like, literally all things. And this includes God's reigning over sin and the sinful actions of men, and overruling them for his good purposes, like we see with Samson's actions. So let's go through Samson's life again. What did God say his plan was for Samson? Chapter 13, verse 5 told us that Samson would begin to save Israel from the Philistines. Now, unequivocally, undeniably, for certain, God accomplished that plan. Let's just recap some of the stuff Samson did, right? Samson killed over 4,000 people by himself, right? He's like a walking A-bomb. Uh, he killed over 4,000 people by himself. He destroyed city gates by himself. He burned food supplies for the Philistines. He destroyed their temple. If there are 3,000 people, there's, I counted just because it was fun for me. There's about 50 people in this room right now. There were 3,000 people. Think about how big that that temple must have been. Right? What, what a huge blow this would have been to the Philistines. Not only that, but in doing so, he insulted their God and showed that Yahweh is really the true God. So clearly, Samson accomplished, or God accomplished his plan through Samson. I don't think we can really disagree with that. He struck at the Philistines. And here's where it gets uncomfortable. If you read the text honestly, it was Samson's sin that God used as an opportunity to strike the Philistines. Every time. Right? Let's recap. Samson wanted to marry a pagan Philistine. What was the end result of that? Over a thousand dead Philistines and crops were burned. Food supply, food shortage for them now. Because Samson wanted to marry a pagan against the law of God. Another thing, the prostitute, right? Chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Samson goes in, he sleeps with a prostitute. And what does that result in? The broken, destroyed gates of Gaza. We see Samson decides to get in bed with Delilah. And how does that end? 3,000 dead Philistines and a temple destroyed. So this whole thing, I'm going to backtrack. So this whole thing, so we see the sin of Samson is what gave God, or God used for opportunity to strike the Philistines. And this whole thing started with Samson's marriage to the Philistine woman. 
which was sin. Chapter 14, verse 4. I could not get away from this all week. Try as I might. Couldn't get away from this. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Again, I want to highlight this is is a reference to his marriage to this woman from Timnah was from the Lord. So God is using the sin of Samson to accomplish his will because in it he is seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And I know I'm laboring the point, but I'm doing so because a lot of people think that I I, I get this vibe sometimes that I'm trying to make like an army of, of... reformed baptists at revolution church and like that may be have its fair days someday right like i'm whatever um i i I am not trying to to make you all into a bunch of calvinists this evening although i wish you would be um but what i'm what i'm pointing out in this verse is that there is no escaping the fact that god used the sin of samson as part of his will Wesleyan, Baptist, Arminian, Calvinist, no matter where you land on the spectrum, it is undeniable that that's what God is doing in this text. And we have to do something with it. The Bible says that we have to do something with it. So I know what some of you guys are already thinking, because it's what we all think whenever we hear this stuff. Does this make, since God foreordains the sin as part of the plan, does this make God guilty of sin and man innocent of wrongdoing? Absolutely not. Right, hear me on this. Absolutely not. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. This is a go-to on this question. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right, so before we go any further, hold on to those verses. Like grip them, pull it, put, them, put, them put them dear to your chest. Right? Because, and I don't mean this as a backhanded thing. If you, if you can't handle the rest of the things that I'm getting ready to say, you must hold on to James 1, 13 through 15. God is innocent. Man is guilty when sin occurs. You must hold on to that. Right? So if you're not at a spiritually mature enough place where you can say, I am convinced that whatever God does is good because God does it, if you're not convinced of that truth, then I want you to shelve this doctrine and come back to it whenever you're rooted in the truth of the goodness of God. All right? So again, I just can't make that clear enough. Hold on to that if that means you have to ignore me for the rest of the sermon. God is good. Man is guilty when sin occurs. So Scripture consistently teaches that God foreordains all things, that man willingly sins, and that God holds men responsible for their sin. Those three things are consistent all throughout Scripture. Now, theologians call this, here's your $5 word of the evening. Theologians call this the doctrine of divine concurrence. Now, I'll give you a definition of this. This comes from Ligonier Ministries, so you know it's good. Um, it says this, two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent. All right, so that's, that's the essence of it. It's, it's deeper than that. But that's the essence of it. The two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent. So when we look at this biblically, we see that God intends only, ever, and always good 
in what he foreordains, while man intends evil when man sins. So God is innocent and man is guilty of sin. An example from Samson. Samson intended to sin and break the law of God in his marriage to the Philistine woman. He was not trying to fulfill the plan or purpose of God. He actually gives us the reason for the marriage, Samson's reason. He says, she looks good to me, man. She is right in my eyes. I find her attractive. I want this woman, and I don't care what the law says. Even whenever his parents try to remind him of the law, he says, I don't care. She looks good to me. That was Samson's intention. What was God's intention? Chapter 13, verse 5 tells us that he would begin to save Israel. That's God's intention through the whole thing. Samson is wholly different. So Samson is not trying to do God's will. He was just sinning, and God had purposed the event for other reasons. Therefore, Samson is guilty of sin. God is innocent of all wrongdoing. All right, so though God uses the sinful actions of men, his intent is to work out his good purpose. Right? He's working out his good purpose for his glory. And because of that, God is never guilty of wrongdoing because his purpose is good and not wrong, and his glory is good and not wrong. Again, man is not trying to accomplish the purpose of God when man sins. Man is just sinning, and all the while, God is superseding their intent and working his plan through it. It's not just in Samson either. Like, this is all throughout the Bible if you give it a fair reading, right, and, like, and look for it and not just glaze over the text. Uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is the most famous example, right? Joseph, right? Coat of many colors guy. His brothers hate him, and they sell him into slavery, and he sinned against his entire life. His brothers sold him into slavery because they hated him. And at the end of it, he says this to him, verse 20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice... Joseph doesn't say, you intended evil, and God made it into good. That's actually impossible. For God to take an evil thing and make it good is an impossibility, because it is objectively evil, and God tells us it is sin to call evil good and good evil. He tells us that in Isaiah, I believe. So God doesn't take an evil thing and make it good. He intends, and when I say intends, I mean He purposes the good to come from the act. So in Joseph's example, God was doing good. All of the sin of Joseph's story served the plan of God. God was bringing salvation to his people, Israel, so that they did not starve to death. His brothers were selling Joseph into slavery because they hated him. I'm sure there's another question. And if not, I have the microphone and you don't. If God ordains the sin, if God ordains the sinful actions of men, then why does he hold man guilty for it? That's real, right? That's the real question. Why does he still hold men guilty for their sin if God foreordains it? That's the big question. That's the hardest question. We are now getting into very, very sacred grounds. We're now getting into the mysteries of God. We're trying to get into the mind of God himself. This is deep stuff. So one, let's not forget that James chapter 1 tells us that man always willingly sins. He says, you're dragged away by your own desires whenever you sin. James also tells us that God does not force the sinner's hands. 
in their sin. Man always does what man desires to do. Even if God foreordains that man would do it, man still wanted to do it. Not only that, but let's not forget this. Man actually commits the sin. Man is actually objectively guilty for breaking the law of God. Regardless of foreordination, man actually broke the law. So let's not forget that. But secondly, and this is, this is harder, Scripture does give us an answer for why God still holds men guilty, though He foreordains and predestines all things. One answer, Romans chapter 9, verses 18 through 28. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, hardening them in their sin. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The Apostle Paul is talking about this kind of stuff, and he expects us to say, why does God still find fault with the sinner? Because what sinner can resist the will of God? Paul answers us with, who are you to question God? So again, if I was saying that to you, maybe you would think that I'm being like kind of rude or condescending, but the fact that this is God, this is inspired scripture, the Lord himself is saying this to us. We ought to take this and accept it. Who are we to question the sovereignty and justice and righteousness of God? Who are we? The full answer to this question is indeed a mystery, and God has decided that we don't need to know it. Deuteronomy 29, 29, I didn't write it down, a paraphrase for you. The secret things of the Lord belong to the Lord, but whatever He has revealed is for us to obey and keep and know. So there are things that are secret, there are mysterious things that God doesn't tell us. But God does tell us that He is God, he is righteous in all that he does. And according to God, that is enough for us to know. And just to take it a step further, we all really, I mean, if I'm, if I'm going to press you, if you're a Christian here, we all really already believe that God foreordains sin in his plan and holds men guilty and is accomplishing his purposes in the sin. Even if you don't realize it, you already believe that. It's actually what you believe in to be a Christian. Here's what I mean by this. We see it clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter is preaching. He says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Christ was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. By the way, I'd like to talk to you more if you think foreknowledge means that God just knows something in the future. Mm, it's much deeper than that. But he was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Not only that, we see it was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus himself during his life prophesied his own crucifixion multiple times. The prophet Isaiah says it was the Lord's good plan to crush Jesus Christ. That Jesus, we're told in Revelation, is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was the predetermined, predestined plan of God. That Christ would be crucified in the place of sinners, absorbing the wrath of God for those who would believe. 
To think that God looks down the tunnel of time, right, as a lot of people like to say, and he looks down the tunnel of time and sees that Jesus is going to be crucified and then says, well, I better do something with this in order to save people, is blasphemy. One, you're saying to look down the tunnel of time, that God had to look to know something, which means he's not omniscient, that's blasphemy. To see that people would murder the Son of God and that God then must react to that means that he is not in control, which is blasphemy. We see the sovereignty of God all over the cross. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him. And yet, Peter tells us man is still held responsible for crucifying the Son of God. This Jesus, you crucified and killed. He lays the guilt on them. So check this out. God intended to save his elect through the crushing of the Son, while man intended the evil of just slaying the Christ because they hated him. This is what we mean by concurrence. Same event. Same outcome. Different intents from God and the people who did the act. We see it all over the cross of Christ. In this foreordained sin, the crucifixion of the Son of God, the worst sin, the most heinous sin of all time, God worked the greatest good in all of history. The salvation of all who would believe by the work of Christ. The greatest sin resulted in the greatest good. This is sovereignty. That is sovereignty. God is vindicated in all that He does, and He answers to no one. And He is good, He is righteous, and He is sovereign over all things. We see that in the cross. So, so what are we to take? From this, right? Like, dude, Dave, did you just stand up here and teach us like 50 minutes worth of just theology for the sake of theology? I don't see the practical implications of this on my life. Maybe some of you are thinking that. So what are we to take from the fact that God is sovereign over the sin of men? I'll challenge you with this. Too often, we only look to the scripture to give us rules and tell us how to live and tell us what to believe. And when we view Scripture as that, we miss the point that God wants us to see. God wants us to look at the Scripture and see Him for who He is and then fall on our faces and worship. This God is sovereign. He wants us to see His majesty in this. He wants us to see Him as unrivaled and majestic and overruling. Let me give you some definitions of sovereign. One one possessing supreme power and authority. One who is superlative in quality. The most exalted. Having undisputed ascendancy. Unlimited in extent. And having complete autonomy. We see this in God as we consider His sovereignty over sin. He wants us to see and know who He is. Likewise, I think God also wants us to see His sovereignty and be humbled. Romans 9 is the most humbling chapter in the Bible, I think. At least those verses that we looked at are one of the most humbling passages. As we consider the sovereignty of God, we begin to know our place as creatures. Who are we to question Him in anything that He does ever? He is the potter, we are the clay. What right does the clay to have to say to the potter, why did you make me like this? 
the sovereignty of the potter. And in being humbled and seeing the vastness and greatness of God, we are forced to accept Him for who He is and not an idol that we've made in our own minds. And as we accept Him for who He is, we begin to recognize that He is infinite in wisdom and that we are finite and that we lack understanding. And in seeing this, we are pushed to draw near to this God and learn to trust Him in everything. So this doctrine, while leaving us with questions, and I know you've got questions, because I do. And just sidebar, I want to talk to every single one of you if you want to talk about this. Don't leave here mad at me. Don't leave here upset. Don't leave here not believing that God is good. I'll sit down with every single one of you at some point in time in the future. I promise you that. One-on-one, I'll sit down with all of you. Because I understand there are questions. This is just miles deep in a mystery. And we've just scratched the surface this evening. So I understand. I I wrestle with this. This is the hardest doctrine that that I've ever preached on, I believe. I get it. And I I want to talk to you about that. But anyway, this doctrine, while leaving us with a huge amount of questions, gives us great occasion to rest and rejoice. Our God cannot be stopped. Like nothing stops him. The good plan of God will always go off as he intends it to. And what is that plan? That plan is to redeem his elect and restore the creation. And nothing, nothing in the world is going to stop that plan. No sin of man can stop that plan. No scheme of Satan himself is going to keep our sovereign God from doing all the good things that he has planned to do. And we are the beneficiaries of that plan. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. He can't be stopped. And the believer is the beneficiary. What What a cause for joy. In all things. Though it may be hard, a big hard pill for us to swallow, what a cause for joy. So as we see sin in the world, we can be at peace knowing that God has not lost one ounce of control. And that God will still serve justice to the unrepentant sinner. Even when men and the devil try to overthrow God by sin. God is so in control that they are actually pushing his plan forward unbeknownst to them. God cannot be thwarted. He will redeem his people. This is a huge, powerful God. And we, the believer, are in his good, loving hands. Let's pray. Father, you are so much bigger than us. You're glorious. You are, if nothing else, you are sovereign. We know you're sovereign. We know you're good. We know you're righteous in all that you do. Father, thank you for showing us that in your word this evening. God, you know that man struggles with this. You anticipate us to pose questions about this. Father, I pray that the believers that are here would struggle with this in a godly manner, not denying the truth of your word, not rejecting you as the one true God, but struggling with this in a godly way that says, I'm going to trust you through this, though I may not understand, and I'm going to recognize my place as a creature. Help us all to do that, Father. Help us to see you 
and savor you for who you are. Father, please sovereignly draw an unbeliever to you this evening. Let them see that they indeed are guilty before you, just like Joseph's brothers, just like Samson, just like the men who crucified Christ. Let the unbelievers see their guilt and then see the hope that they have in a sovereign God who justifies the ungodly when they believe. God, we worship you and we thank you for being in control. In Jesus' name, amen.